Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life in a Bubble with me, Oliver Dingley. This is the podcast where some of Ireland's most successful people share and describe photos of their most memorable moments and the journeys that were behind them. Today's guest is a past winner of Celebrity MasterChef, the author of two successful cookbooks, a TV pundit and a columnist. For all of that, however, he was a majorly successful athlete who won world and European medals and also competed at the 2008 Olympic Games. So today's guest is the brilliant David Gillick. David Gillick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to Life in a Bubble. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I've done my research and Jesus, you're a talented man. <laughs> I just want to know, how do you make a cookbook? <laughs> yeah, it's... Look, to be honest with you, it was six years ago I did Celebrity MasterChef and I did well at that. And did well, yeah, you kind of won. Yeah, I won it and it wasn't as if like, okay, I won it and then it was like, right, I'm going to take over the world, I'm going to write books, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It wasn't like that at all. It literally just... It was done, I won, it finished, and I moved on. And then lo and behold, a couple of months afterwards, I was asked to do a cookbook. The publisher approached me, and I said, all right, yeah, I'll give it a go. Completely blind to it. Didn't know what it entailed or what I needed to do. And then I started a process, and it was intense. I did the book, which involved me writing like all the recipes, proofing all the recipes, giving it to, to the editor, the editor going through everything, coming back to me, changing it, da, 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 doing all that stuff. And then the hardest part was actually the photography of it. Do you like batch cook a load, take a few pictures of that, no. feed it to the photographers no, and then all. onto the it's next? It's a little more professional no. than that now, to be honest with you, Ollie. Basically, what, what would happen is you got to come up with the recipes. So I'd have... Like, I, I would have had a bank of recipes myself and then I would have looked at, say, and I would have followed other chefs and kind of went, okay, well, like, you're not going to reinvent a curry, but it's like, well, how can you make it a little bit healthier? You know, can you use different ingredients? And you just kind of make it your own. And that's how I kind of would have worked with some of the recipes. And then you just break it into, like, okay, your your breakfast, your lunches, your dinner, and then a couple of snacks. So I would have had to write all of those up and test them and then hand it all over to the editor. And then the editor would have went through it and you would have kind of the text, you would have found and then it was a case of giving it over to a food stylist and the food stylist would read through and go oh this sounds good this might look good and she'd pick say 50% of them so you're looking at maybe 100 recipes 50 to 100 actually recipes. yeah wow. to actually uh, photo and then she would arrive at the venue and we did it in my house and it was like okay here's our venue for the photography and she'd come with a van load of props everything from little spoons to big wooden boards to textiles to cups to saucers to everything do you get to keep them like does no. the kitchen get kitted out no oh. not at all not at all and we didn't even like my dad had to rope my dad in to be the pot washer because what happens is you've got only four days so it's all costs like yeah, you've got yeah, to pay yeah. her she's the food stylist but then also you have a photographer so she would go okay David here's your list for day one day two day three and I'd be cooking them handing them over she'd take a pick I'd have the next one ready to go and it was just like that it was relentless no and then pressure I, then <laughs> immense pressure and it was like dad wash the pot we need that again and dad'll be scrubbing away and then we go again so it was an intense week and the actual cover shoot for my first book was on day five and I was wrecked by the end of it and I look at the picture and I go look at the state of me I look so tired bags under the eyes and everything but that was it and I swore I'm never doing another one I'm not doing another cookbook and then about a year and a half later they came back and said ooh that went well would you do another one and I was thinking oh okay but like that cookbook is kind of totally different now to the the former one the previous one because like this one's more about your approach to life yeah 
and a bit more kind of rounded, like a rounded lifestyle. Yeah, like my first book was David Gillis' Kitchen and that was a pure out-and-out cookbook off the back of MasterChef and, you know, kind of healthy eating and people wanted to know about that and how to cook a little bit better. And then the second one was, you know, I suppose I'd been on a journey myself post-career and I was kind of dealing with certain issues and I was coming out the other side of that. And when I was approached to do that, I was like, yeah, look, you know, food is very important and it's been very important to me in terms of, I suppose, like looking after myself. But so has other elements, such as my mindset, such as rest and recovery, exercise. And I kind of felt, you know what, I want to make it not an autobiography, but a little bit more about the journey that I've been on. So I kind of broke it into four kind of key areas, mindset, rest and recovery, exercise, and then nutrition, which included a whole lot of recipes. And like, how much did you take from that from your sporting days into that book as well? Yeah, a lot, like particularly around the exercise. And I think, you know, been a professional sports person and training full time and doing all that, you know, exercise, it was my life, but it was all about a performance. It was all about, you know, okay, you know, it was my job. I needed to make a championships. I needed to perform. I needed to get my funding. I needed to have sponsors. I needed to pay for a roof over my head. So like from that perspective, it was very much like a business. But the journey that I had been on in terms of like my mental health and physical well-being, I actually now put a huge value on exercise for a whole host of different reasons. It's not about paying the bills. It's actually about looking after myself. So I think I've taken what I've learned in terms of sport and dealing with like the anxiety and dealing with the the nerves and all those sort of emotions and, and even the planning and, you know, having a goal and kind of the strategy of how you're going to achieve that goal, the process, I've brought that into into the book in terms of like how you can plan, what sessions you can do in a time efficient way and then the elements of rest and the elements of a mindset, you know, positivity, growth mindset, things like that. And I've taken that from the world of sport and put it into my day-to-day life and I wanted to share that. Certainly like a, a unique take. I really struggle with the structure in life and, and the things you talk about in there, kind of the mindset, the rest of a diet. Mm. And I, I've always really struggled with that. So it's, it's fantastic seeing people like yourself allow other people in uh, and also gives people a kick up the bum as well. We all know what we need to be doing. It's a case that sometimes you just need that kind of, as you said, kick in the arse. And I'm no different. I need that now and again. And I think it's kind of, you know, as an athlete, we, we always had a goal. We always had a plan. You always knew what you were working towards and you built your day around that. You built your week, your month, uh, your four-year Olympic cycle. And it was always kind of clear, very clear. And I think what we do in kind of the real world, as I call it, is we forget about the clarity of that goal. You know, we kind of say, oh, I'd like to do this and maybe I'll do this, but we don't kind of commit to it. And then sometimes when it comes back to our wellness, we tend to focus on, you know, the outcome of it. Okay, I want to, I want to lose weight, I want to put on weight, I want to get fitter. But we don't really ask ourselves, okay, how am I going to do that? And I think in the corporate world, some of your listeners will be very familiar with the words like vision, mission, strategy, collaborate, all of these kind of words. And we know that, we know that very well. But when it comes back to our own kind of well-being, we forget all about that and we focus on the outcome, the outcome. And I think it is getting back to that process of like, okay, I want to achieve this. I want to do this for myself. How do I need to do it? and focus on what you need to do on a daily basis. And it could be one thing, two things, three things, and we build from there. So the first photo, which is I'm going to get you to describe. Okay, so I'm looking at a picture of me with the national flag, the tricolour raised uh, above my head, standing on a track, and the bib number says Madrid 2005, and that was when I won my first European indoor title over 400 metres at the European indoors back in Madrid 2005. Obviously, I'm delighted, I'm smiling, I'm happy, the arms are aloft in the victory sign. That was a huge moment for me in terms of my career. I was young, I was actually a student here in TIT Angel Street at the time. I was 21, and I became the first 
Irish sprinter in 76 years to win a sprint gold medal so that was quite a big thing in terms of sprinting in Ireland like, I mean traditionally we're a middle distance exactly longer distance country yeah. people would have kind of said oh David you know 400 metres would you not be better at 800 metres 1500 metres would you not move up and sometimes at a young age we do kind of see people who are talented over 400 but because of our culture and our history in the middle distance we might kind of push them a little bit up to 800 metres but I think for me I stuck at it and kind of prior to this championship this was 05 I went to the world juniors in 2002 so three years before that but I didn't make my individual time I didn't qualify as an individual athlete but thankfully Athletics Ireland sent a relay team and that for me was my first kind of my first taste of a major championship that was in Jamaica right that was in Jamaica nice and exotic yeah Kingston Jamaica for a competition exactly and I was only 18 so you can imagine I get the you know you get the Irish kit you get on a long haul flight to Jamaica like Kingston Jamaica and that really blew my mind I can remember going gee you know what I want more of this I want more of this and that really kind of focused me in terms of athletics thankfully for me making that decision was probably a pivotal moment and obviously two years later I got very well rewarded in terms of winning the European indoors but two years that's such a short time scale in the grand scheme of things to just accelerate from a junior to senior European champion did you ever imagine yourself when you started standing there with the tricolours European gold medal around your neck was that ever a thing for you? I dreamt about it you're in lectures and your mind wanders and you do dream I'm not ashamed to admit that like I wanted to do a lap of honour that was the thing I wouldn't blame you like did I ever believe it probably not and I'll be honest with that I I think by nature I I probably wasn't the most confident I would be a confidence athlete which means basically I would look for confidence from what I do and I look for confidence from other people so I wanted my coach to kind of go David that was good you know that's what I looked for and to be honest sometimes when I had that dream about winning a medal or doing this doing that there was always a nagging little voice that would be like really are you that good enough you're from Ireland we're not really built to sprint so there was that kind of argument in my head where where like yes there was that dream and yes I'd love to do that but then there was the counter little voice that would be saying ah David come on really well you were good enough and you got more medals to prove it as well and uh, you kind of talk about that constant thinking kind of over and over in the head did you ever think too much yes yeah I think that's a a common thing for athletes especially in individual events I overanalyzed yeah, definitely. I suppose as I, grow, as I kind of matured, I began to understand that and began to kind of like check myself and stop myself from overanalyzing. But I think when I was younger, you know, you'd overanalyze, have I done enough work? Am I good enough? What about this athlete? What about that athlete? You know, and you're kind of comparing yourself. Did you expect to win? No. No. So what was that like I, after not, you won? Yeah, like I'm not saying defeatist. Like I was in shape that year. Like I ran well indoors. It was my first indoor season and I was on a bit of a win streak. I'd won the British Championships. I'd ran fast. And there was a couple of other lads ahead of me on the list, maybe one or two one of which was, was Spanish David Canal and he was probably the man to beat and people would look at him to, to win it and I ran really well in my semi-final I ran uh, a big personal best I think at the time it was like maybe the second fastest Irish time and that put me in a good lane but I was absolutely riddled with nerves that weekend honestly I couldn't eat I'll never forget it because I was trying to force food into me because I was so so nervous and even like you know warming up for that final just I can remember going into I I vividly remember it because I was so wrecked I was getting sick after the semi-final because I'd ran pretty hard like I was wrecked but there was nothing in me I had no food I started retching and then it was into a nice bath to get the legs back and I came around and that probably window of a couple of hours was when I was able to 
relax and I was able to kind of refuel but the minute I woke up the following day for the final straight back the nerves the anxiety I remember my coach was like come on we'll get you at a hotel we'll go for something to eat because the final was in the evening and he brought me to a little kind of restaurant no conversation out of me I can remember cutting up like a piece of chicken and putting it in my mouth and then getting water and just trying to get it into me into my stomach and I remember I, like I was just I was just so nervous I had to get out of the restaurant and I was on the side like on a footpath outside the restaurant and I had my hands on my knees I was that nervous I just couldn't I couldn't get thoughts out of my head and all that that's know? crippling like it that, was, yeah. That's yeah. debilitating in a way. It was, yeah. Function. The only thing is, though, when I got myself together and I went down to the warm-up area, and I can remember just getting into my routine. And it clicked. And it clicked. And my routine was like, you know, I'd get in there, I'd, I had music, exact same spot as where I was the day before, and I just got into my warm-up drills, and that relaxed me. That was familiar, you know, and then it kind of, it clicks, like the mantras will come into my head, the game faces would begin to come on, and that was it. So again, once I, it, it was the waiting around that was killing me. But I learned an awful lot from that. I can remember coming home, going right I've won a gold medal fantastic did I enjoy that weekend hell no no, no. I can imagine I know in my own sport it's like once you're done you just thank god that yeah, is done it's over it's over but you learn from that and then you then I was kind of like right well I need to I need to do something about this I need to deal with these nerves and anxiety and I did and how did you deal with that got help began kind of talking to people and going right how do I deal with this and like simple little things over the years and you know as I kind of matured I, I realised you know what nerves are actually a good thing I want the nerves because that shows that I care and if, if you're getting nervous it means that it means something to you and then like little things like meditation or mindfulness now just focus on my breathing anytime it got really bad the nerves I'd focus on my breathing imagine there's a feather at the end of my nose and try not to dislodge that feather so it centres you other little things as well I'd go back and I'd get all pictures of races or even like video clips put them all together made a little kind of clip for myself put it over music and I'd watch that so anytime I got really nervous with doubts I'd look back at that and I'd be like that's me that's me I did that so that would big me big me up. And then another one was I'd write down all the doubts. So we all get doubts. I'd write them down and I'd rip them up and chuck them in the bin. I'd get them out of my head and then I'd write down all the positives. It's very symbolic. Yeah. And I'm yeah. literally actually physically, physically doing built, that. Yeah. And then I used to put down all the positive things. So like the times I ran, the races that I ran, the training sessions, how many training sessions. I had a training diary. I'd literally pick that up. I'd flick through it and go, look at all the sessions I've done. I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, so again, I was just reaffirming myself the whole time. Photo number two, I wanted to talk about this one because the headline of this says David Gillick had an unusual and interesting way of coping with crippling nerves. And it's a picture of you on a stage talking to an audience. Now, how did those nerves affect you after 2005 when you've had all the success? You come back to Ireland as a star. You're still at DIT, so you're still in your education. Yeah. And boom, you've, you've got all of this at your feet, in effect. You've got people talking about you. How was that for you with that added pressure and the anxiety that was there I struggled yeah I'll be honest I struggled like you said I went into those championships in 05 under the radar nobody knew who I was and nobody really expected me to do anything suddenly you come back with a gold medal and your face is in the paper it's like the neighbours everyone on your street goes oh Jesus we didn't know you were that good and then it was like oh what's next are you going to go to world championships are you going to win a medal are you going to get faster and it was all of those sort of things and I'd never I'd never experienced those questions before in my life and I can remember in the immediate aftermath of it like I was at home and I wanted to go down to the shop and get like a sandwich or a roll and the thought in my head was like oh what happens if I bump into people you know what happens if they ask me about running and all this and what am I going to say so straight away I was on the defence and it's kind of like oh I just won't go down to the shop so it actually restricted me in, in that way and like you said I was in DIT at the time and I just came back on the Monday and I can remember the plane landed in the airport and the door opened and there was a lad with bagpipes and a little dress and he blew the bagpipes <laughs> the whole way through Dublin airport and he was like you'll get your bags later and I was like I was behind him waving like the queen and everyone's kind of looking at me going who's your man you know and I, 
I felt ridiculously <laughs> awkward. But like I'd never experienced that before. And then the Lua started running that year and I live over in Ballantyre group there. So Balali was my stop. So I went down on the Tuesday morning because I had lectures. So I just talked right in as normal. They used to hand out a free, kind of hand out a free metro paper. I hopped on the Lewis and it was packed. <laughs> and there was a guy standing next to me and he's reading the paper and then he flips it over in the back pages and he looks at the picture on the back of the page then looks up at me and looks back down. Double take. Uh, double yeah. take. There was my fat head in the back of the paper. And then he's kind of looking at me going, you know, pointing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I didn't expect any different and I just came into lectures and then you know I remember when the lectures was like oh do everybody stand up and give David a round of applause and I was embarrassed I was like oh lad sit down like you know but all of that had changed so suddenly there's expectations suddenly I'm not saying people knew who I was and we've been stopped on the street and stuff like that but sometimes it felt like that because you can kind of go oh god are people going to recognise me and it's not ego or anything like that but it's that it's just so new it's a massive change and I kind of interpret that as like expectation and pressure and I struggled into that 2005 I got injured in the summer I ended up missing the world champs it's a hard one especially he, coming off yeah it was success like yeah. that well the headlines is like Gillig misses out on world champs whereas like seven months before I wouldn't have even been like it was, it was like kind of fails to get failure. to world champs yeah, yeah it's, it's suddenly kind of negative and that was hard and then people are kind of like oh he's a one hit wonder oh it's gone to his head like suddenly there's expectation there's, there's an element of pressure and I'd never dealt with that and there was no kind of post championship debrief or there was no people were going to come in and go okay David here's what's going to happen here's how you're going to deal with it it was very much oh you're off on your own accord deal with it has it changed since for I athletes? think it has now yeah yeah. I'd like to say it has and I think there's better resources in terms of like the institute and some really good kind of service personnel in there particularly on like the sports psychology side you know I know a few of them in there and they're they're a lot more prepared for what might happen be it success or be it failure actually just looking at a few pictures of you right now <laughs> Jesus they look so much better than diving photos like you look mostly in great. If what I'm are you ever, saying? I've lost it now. Oh no, you've still got it. You still got it. But like, if I ever see a picture of myself, I look constipated when I'm spinning around. So it's, it's rather unfortunate for me. Whereas you, you actually look pretty cool, especially with those shades on as well. Yeah, the, the shades are interesting. People used to always ask me, why do why do you run shades? You know. Yeah, so- why do you run with shades? Well, why? Well, for me, right, it was more. I felt like I was in my own world. Oh, okay. You know, it was my own cocoon. It wasn't to do with trying to be cool or lights or anything like that. It was literally, when they went on, I felt it was like a mask. It was like I was going on stage and I was in my own little world and that was it. And it just helped. So, picture two. It's me running. I'm racing in the World Championship final in 2009. I'm in lane two and I'm probably about, I'd say, 30 metres into the 400. So, I've just come out of my blocks. So, I'm blowing (laughs) out of my mouth and uh, you're in that acceleration phase. So, that was me pushing off in a world final. I suppose for me, after winning in 05 and we probably skipped over 2007 where I retained that title of course um, yeah, yeah. which was brilliant and I ran fast and by this stage I was now living in England so it's nice to kind of move and then you get instant results the decision has worked it's paid off I'm in a good environment I'm running fast and then it was almost like right well I've won two Europeans now I really want to make a global final I really want to get to like top eight in the world and I want to be up there with the best 400 meter athletes in the in the world and to do that I needed to run 44 seconds I need to get under that 45 seconds with I think, you know, to be fair, it's deemed world class if you can get under that 45. It's now on Superhuman. I once tried the 400 metres for my secondary school All in right. the county championships. And I kind of, I just wanted the afternoon off school, really. <laughs> and Jesus Christ, about 300 metres around that track, I was wishing I was back in class. See, I'm telling you, you know, 
you should have just went and done the long jump or something. Oh no, I did that as well. I volunteered for as much as I could because I was on another day. So I got out of mock school, which worked a treat for me. And it turned out I was a lot better at long jump than I was 400 meter. But, but going back to 2007, actually, because ultimately you did become one of the best athletes in the world in your event. But... That process to get there wasn't plain sailing for you, obviously. No. You had 2007, you had a rather big event called the Olympic Games yeah. in 2008. <laughs> so tell us about your 2007 where you, you retained your European title. And then how did that progression go from 2007 into 2008 where you obviously qualified quite early on for the Olympics? Yeah, I was a year and a half. That's, that's, that's a long time to know that you go into the Olympics. Yeah, and particularly if you've got a head on your shoulders that overthinks things. So you're right, in Birmingham 2007, so that's March, I moved to England in October 2006 off the back of 05 06 came around European Outdoor Championships I improved as an athlete it was now a case of making that final would be progression I went to Gothenburg I completely and utterly bombed in my semi-final I came paddy last I froze I had a really really bad race and just everything got on, got on top of me the nerves the, the pressure the anxiety and I didn't deal with it and I bottled it when you look back now and you recognise that situation and everything that was going in, what things would you have changed? I definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, would have dealt with the nerves a lot better. I wasn't honest with myself. I let kind of like some of the, not media, but like very much kind of off the back of a European win in 05, it was like, oh, well, now it's European outdoors and there was that kind of pressure. And I just didn't deal with it. I just kind of, I, I just panicked. You know, I, I really did. And I wasn't clear on my kind of race plan and it just all fell flat. And the scariest thing about sport, especially in an event like yours, where split decisions determine so much, it's, it's gone. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's a millisecond, it that is. mistake, and people can streak ahead or tactically if you've, mm. if you've messed well, up. I panicked, one you know, it, it was kind of the panic set in and I just let it all kind of get on top of me I just yeah I just lost control I didn't run a great race and I kind of came in paddy last and was devastated and embarrassed but looking back it was the first time that I debriefed after a championship first time I sat down with myself and asked myself okay what am I doing I finished college in DIT Angel Street I was at that sort of crossroads of what I was going to do next and off that experience in Gothenburg I was like you know what that can't happen again I want to give this a go so I made a promise with myself that I didn't want to get to the age of 30 and look back and go what if what if I gave her a go what would have happened so that was the moment I said alright well I'm going, to, I'm going to give this a go and I went full time I relocated over to Loughborough University in the UK and I absolutely loved it straight away I had results like you said that time that I won in Birmingham 07 that qualified me for the Olympics in 2008 so a year and a half ahead I'd qualified which is great because you're not chasing qualification times and you can plan things a little bit better and I did that and 07 was a great year I went on to the world champs in the summer I made a semi-final ran well that was my first kind of like individual global and performed really well I was now running 45-3 so I was getting down you know uh, and I was consistently doing it and then obviously it was everything was all about the Olympics it was my first Olympics I was looking forward to it yeah, everyone at home was looking forward to it my friends my family I had three mates that said you know what we're taking a year out we're going to cycle to Beijing so that added to it as well oh wow okay <laughs> Yeah, from no, Dublin. no pressure there no pressure they cycled they took a year out of their lives and they cycled from from Dublin all the way over to Beijing what route did they go they went everywhere we met them in, in Germany for Oktoberfest at the end of the 07 season and then they pedaled on through all the stands and all that like Turkmenistan and all that, those places and then into China which China is massive but it was great because it was something like all my mates were into it and they're all following it and stuff like that but I suppose like in hindsight looking 
back, it did kind of add on a little bit more pressure to me. And that was hard. But also, it's the Olympic Games. It's the pinnacle of my sport. 2008, I was now running 45.1. So I was getting so <sighs> close that. to yeah. that 45. If I was to perform at an Olympic Games at that time, maybe if I could dip under the 45, you could be in a shot of making an Olympic final. My training partner, Martin Rooney, that year, he ran 44.7, which... You know, phenomenal. He was four years younger than me, so he was a young guy, you know. He was he was only about, like, 19. Even in our training group, that's the level we were at. And we went to a training camp in, in Japan, and it was great. You know, it, it was really good. But the only thing I would say is the training camp was, like, we were out there maybe two weeks prior to my race. It's two weeks of just literally thinking about that Sitting race. Sitting around, twiddling your phones. Sitting around. Like, you're out of your kind of familiar comfort zone and all you ever see is a hotel room hotel room you're training you're around all the other uh, athletes and when are you competing when are you competing when are you competing and it's like oh it's two weeks away stop and that can be very difficult and I suppose like looking back again it was a case of I probably overanalyzed it I probably thought about it too much it was my first Olympics so you're just going oh god I want to run well I want to just not bomb not bomb you know and uh, that's what happened I bombed (laughs) so it wasn't great when I do look back there there was a few kind of issues as well and I think it's very important we talk about these because there's a few factors in there yeah there was yeah such as well being ill at the time yeah and it was something that I I didn't really speak about it because I kind of just felt it probably me being me I was a little bit pig headed you know it didn't go that well you come out with excuses and I just didn't want to be that person so I kept it all in house but you know what actually happened was I came down with foot and mouth and I was like what I thought like (laughs) cows get that but apparently it's it's common with kids you know and what what had happened was that I noticed during the summer that I was coming out with rashes on my feet and I just thought it was athlete's foot you know I literally just thought oh it's athlete's foot that's the joys of sport wearing sweaty shoes sweaty shoes you're constantly in and out of spikes you're running in warm climates I just thought it was that and then when I got to Japan for a training camp prior to the Olympics I did a training session and I was absolutely wiped I was wrecked and I just thought oh maybe it's to the the weather the climate or you know the travel didn't really kind of do anything about it and then flying into Beijing I I came out in all kind of mouth ulcers I was like oh that's not right and I only get down when I'm run down but again I didn't talk about it I didn't want to kind of show any kind of weakness because it's the Olympics as well you have that panic it just struck me then just kind of like you've worked so long and hard to get there and just that sheer kind of how frightening that is just to know that something might affect you but you're kind of in a bit of denial where you just don't want anyone to know because no. you you don't want to have it taken away from you yeah. and even like you know or you go to the doctor and the doctor's like yeah you've got a virus you shouldn't compete hell no I'm competing you know what I mean it's like don't tell me that you know I, I'm gonna run regardless and that's what happened and I ran my slowest time of the season in the bird's nest again I was devastated I was embarrassed a lot of friends and family but I went to my coach Nick and I was like Nick something's not right I just I'm not right I don't feel right and Nick was like right come on let's get some bloods the bloods came back and there was nothing really stand out and I was a bit like oh, that's not right so when we came back to Dublin I went for more tests and it came out I had a viral infection and with the ulcers and the, the rashes on my feet they said yeah foot and mouth and I was like foot and mouth <laughs> and they were like yeah no what, it's what actually <laughs> common with kids and stuff and adults can get it basically I, I was just run down and I was and to be honest with you when I look back at 08 I stressed myself out I literally tried to do everything 110% I would not switch off I got really anal about my nutrition my rest recovery my training I was trying to better myself in every aspect of my life and I would never flick the off switch 
I put my hand on my heart and I say, yeah, I'd probably just stress myself out with the Olympics. It's the, the cruel world of sport and also the mind, which is yeah. such a wonderful thing, but can do so much damage as well. And we'll get on to 2009. 2009 strikes me as David Gillick on a mission. Yeah, yeah, it was. I can remember I came back from Beijing and I just started going out with my now wife, Charlotte, and she's from England. And all I wanted to do was go home. I wanted to come home to Dublin. I just wanted to just come back. She'd never really been to Ireland. So I said, you know what? Let's go over. I'll bring the car and we'll just kind of drive around Ireland. So I wanted to bring her to Inishboffin. And I went over to Inishboffin. It's an island off the West Coast. And I can remember just standing on like the edge of the island, looking into the vast Atlantic Ocean. And we were just chatting about next year and the summer and all the rest of it and Beijing and all that. And I can remember just saying to her, like, if I want to pursue this and have a career in it, I've got to start enjoying it. You know, I really do. I have to enjoy the fact that I, I'm a full-time athlete and I've, I'm lucky to have a talent. And that was probably the moment that I decided, you know what, right, David, you know, you're going to train hard. You're going to work hard. You're going to do everything right. But you're going to relax and you're going to have a bit of fun. That was probably the euphoric moment that I brought into 2009. And I just began enjoying what I was doing. And it turned out to be my, my best year solely because I worked hard. I trained hard. But I actually enjoyed the fact that I was an athlete and I was in. I was so fortunate and so lucky to be able to do what I'm doing. So I was grateful for it. And I think I was happy off the track. Obviously, I had a relationship now with Charlotte. And I think for me, happy off the track, happy on the track. And that's the way 2009 kind of unfolded. Well, what a fantastic insight into an absolute phenomenal athletics career. And we'll be back for the rest of your story after this. We want to hear about the moments that mean so much to you. We all face many challenges in our lives that form moments that we're proud of. And we want to hear about your success stories, about your achievements, or even about a time of overcoming adversity. The first of these will be going out in a few weeks' time, so email in a photo of that special moment, and I will arrange to interview you over the phone about why it means so much. Alternatively, you can also send in a voice memo alongside your email. We would love to hear from you, so email in at lifeinabubbledublin at gmail.com. That's lifeinabubbledublin at gmail.com to share that special story. We'll go to your next photo. And I wanted to chat about your relationships and some of the fantastic relationships you've been able to form through sport mm. and kind of how sports had that impact on your, your life of being able to have lifelong friends and also your connection with people in the community. So here is your photo. I'll let you describe yeah, it. That's me and my coach, Nick Dakin. And that is in the Japanese city of Matsui, where it was actually our holding camp back in Osaka for 2007 World Champs and then also Beijing. But that's Nick. Nick was incredibly, he played a pivotal role in my career. I moved over to Loughborough because of him and the athletes he was coaching. And he was someone that had a proven track record. He had brought people up to compete at a global level. And he was an interesting character in himself. You know, he kind of wasn't the most social of people, but he was a really good coach and he brought an element of professionalism to, to what I was doing, an element of structure and an element of belief. And I think that was a huge thing. He would have kind of put the arm around me and said, David, that's a good session. Well done. I used to go to him and go like, Nick, how are we going to get faster? And it was always we, you know, how are we, how are we going to do this? He wasn't running, as you can probably see from his picture. Um, <laughs> yeah. I liked him and I trusted him and I had faith in his experience and how he went about his business. And I think for me, 
that was vitally important to have someone like that and we worked well and then the wider group like there was other people in there Martin Rooney who's very successful in his own right my training partner and we worked really well together and I think we had that really really good bond and those are the people that you know every day I'm working with and we're pushing each other and that was vitally vitally important and I think I'm still very friendly with, with the guys and we see each other and we've all matured now families and kids and all that I think my life in Loughborough was something that I look back now with complete and utter fondness like I loved it I absolutely loved it and you know I've been surrounded with those people was brilliant on a day to day basis they're, they're the people the band of brothers as I used to call them because they drove me you know absolutely they pushed me to new levels and we motivated each other and we were always working for that common goal which was improvement just trying to find point one, point two. that was it like and of course that also took you around the world yeah it was great like we had uh, we had a great couple of years you know we did we were down in South Africa we went over to LA even kind of on the circuit racing together with myself and Rooney would room together and just kind of characters as well interesting stories funny moments all of those sort of stuff and that's the years you look back and go I'm so lucky that I had those opportunities like I saw the world I absolutely saw the world through athletics and it was fantastic uh, certainly a, a fantastic lifestyle very exotic by the sounds of it LA <laughs> yeah. sounds great and so does South LA Africa. was good South Africa <laughs> yeah we, we, we chose well <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> picture number three this is yeah this is me milking the backside out of MasterChef so I like we said earlier I won MasterChef back in 2013 and I kind of you know you asked me to bring in pictures and I threw this in then I was kind of thinking MasterChef I'm really still talking about that but it's not about what happened in that kitchen it's probably the timing of that like I look at that picture and yes it was uh, successful I was on TV and I won Celebrity MasterChef and all that and I found I was good at something else and I had an interest in something else other than athletics but the truth be told I was really struggling at that moment I was very lost and I was very worried and I was very anxious about the future because that was 2013 that was the year that I actually retired from athletics and obviously I was kind of asked to do MasterChef and I was like well I'm not running so I might as well do that but you know I threw myself into it it was a great experience and it's opened up a whole lot of opportunities a lot of work I do now is you know arguably off the back of that but the truth be told like I said I, I was really struggling then and I was worried because I had maybe 12 years been an athlete where I was so motivated, so driven, so routine based. I had a goal, I had a passion, I had a purpose, I had all these sort of things. And then suddenly it was gone. It was all over. And that was pretty scary because I didn't know what I was good at. You know, for years it was all about running around a track and that was my motivation and that was my skill and I was good at it. And now suddenly change happened in a very short space of time, like arguably location moved home and then I suppose the point of it was just everything just suddenly disappeared or was thrown up in the air and I had no routine and I that was probably the, the, the biggest struggle that I had I just didn't know what I was going to do At the time did you know it was because you had no routine or had you just fallen into a, a frame of mind where you just didn't know what the problem was you were just down I was just down yeah like there was obviously that sort of like I suppose change brought that you know, it was a different lifestyle now and I didn't have that team around me. I didn't have all the lads that I'd spent the last couple of years with. I was now moved back to Dublin and it was just all different. Everything was different. The biggest thing was that I just didn't have that goal, didn't have a purpose. So as an athlete, I used to jump out of bed every day and I was going training and I was working towards a championship or towards a time or there was always that clarity that, that of a focus. goal. That focus. And now suddenly that wasn't there. 
And that was something I really, really struggled with. And as a result of that, I kind of just like, well, like, oh, I can eat whatever I want. Oh, I'm not going to bother going training. Oh, I can go out on, on the beer if I wanted to, you know. I can get up late. I can go to bed late. There was the whole structure of my day just was completely altered. So it came into like a vicious cycle. Yeah. In a, in a yeah. Field. And like, I suppose with the anxiety and then kind of like, you know, the frustration, the anger, I began kind of like comfort eating. I began kind of, you know, just going out and not really worrying about like getting home on a certain time or waking up the next day and all this sort of crack so everything just completely went out the window and you know whereas before I was very routine based I was meticulous in terms of my planning I wanted to eat well I wanted to rest well whereas now I just didn't care and I didn't care about myself and that was a real kind of struggle and that changed and I think the biggest thing was I just didn't have a purpose that's what I felt and also being male I didn't I kept it all in house. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to, you know, people used to come and go, oh, so what are you going to do now? You've got the world at your feet. You've retired. You know, you could do this, you could do that. And I'd just be like, yeah, yeah, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to, you know, it was all this big elaborate story because I didn't want to, I, I felt if I was to be honest and go, oh, look, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. That was, that was weak. And I couldn't, couldn't say that, you know, and that then as a result, I didn't want to go out. <laughs> I didn't want to go out with friends. I didn't want to go out to family occasions because I didn't want the questions. So for my photo, it actually sticks along the same lines. And it's a screenshot from The Independent, mm. uh, which is, the headline says, David and his personal Goliath. <laughs> it touches on some really deep issues that a lot of people go through. And it's become even more prevalent in modern day society. There's mm. a more awareness of it where it talks about anxiety and to some of the, the darker moments of kind of that period in your life. Yeah, and I remember that, and that's probably that headline's probably coming out of it a little bit more, where I started kind of talking about it. But for the guts of, I'd say, nearly nearly probably three to four years, I didn't really talk about it, and I didn't want to talk about it, and I kept it all in house. Did you um, know how to explain no, it to people? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know. What, I, di- I I couldn't understand why I was feeling this. And to be honest with you, I kept saying to myself, "Oh, it's just a transition. It's just a transition out of sport." Because you hear about this word transition, and I was like, initially the first kind of couple of weeks, "Oh, it's just a transition," you know, and then months, and then years. Oh, and I remember saying to Charlotte on numerous occasions, "Like, how long does this effing transition last for?" <laughs> You know, because I was always looking for the outcome, the end date. And I dabbled in things. I took like my first job that came my way because I thought I needed I needed a routine and then I needed money. And I thought, okay, well, if I have money, well, then I'll have a title. And then when people go, Dave, what are you up to? Here's my title. I am such and such. Like a solicitor or like exactly. a lawyer or anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I used to be really envious of people who had a title. So what do you do? Oh, I'm a lawyer. Oh my God, like I'd love to be that. Like, I'd lo- And it wasn't about I'd love to be a lawyer. I just wanted that title. So people will then go, oh yeah, you're a lawyer, Grant. That's it. To make you feel like you have more value. Yes. In Society. Yeah. Yeah. Status. And then it was a case of like, well, if I have more money, I'll be happy. So I chased this whole thing about what was happiness, contentment, fulfillment. And I thought it literally was. If I have more money, well, then I'll be happy. And I chased that. So I took the job, and the reality was I was spending an awful lot of time by myself. So I was now working for a company and I was traveling quite a bit, but I was spending an awful lot of time by myself. And soon I wasn't listening to podcasts or music or playlists or anything like that, where I used to be very into that. I was listening literally listening to the voice inside my head and it was just extremely negative and I couldn't shut it up so every day the eyes would wake I had insomnia as well I couldn't sleep I broke out in psoriasis my relationship suffered I was just miserable to be around I'd comfort eat and then this voice would constantly be in the head going you're useless why did you do this and I began to resent my athletic career because it put me in the situation I was in so I kept all that in house and it just kind of that vicious circle I think it was a certain pizza company used to do two large pizzas for the price of one on a Tuesday my favourite day of the week 
I'd be like straight on the blower. Give us two large pizzas and a tub of Ben and Jerry's and it would just kickstart that. I stopped exercising. I stopped going out with friends. My comfort aid. All of these sort of stuff just really kind of affected me personally, um, mentally and physically. And that voice is, is depression. It was, yeah. Yeah, I was diagnosed with depression. And look, friends and family knew I was struggling, but they probably didn't know how to deal with it. And to be fair, like my mum would be like, David, you know, would you go and talk to someone? The minute my mum would say that, the red mist would descend and I'd be like, ah, you know nothing, blah, blah, blah. And likewise with Charlotte, like Charlotte, the pressure on Charlotte because, you know, by this stage she was now my wife, like, and so she knows me better than anybody else and I think she felt that she should be the person to fix me and get me back on track, but she couldn't. She's too emotionally involved, you know. I needed third-party intervention and I can remember going to a doctor and the doctor was like, well, you've got depression. You're ticking all the boxes for depression and I wasn't stupid, I knew I had. And he gave me two prescriptions one was cream for all the psoriasis all over my body and the other one was antidepressants and I can remember that was kind of I suppose the moment where I realised because I was very into my food and like let food be thy medicine and all this sort of crack and then I was like looking at this going I, I need something now like that's that's how bad I was and I was like right I'll go and talk to someone and I did I spoke to one person and I ticked the box and then was like, I spoke to someone that was it I didn't realise there and then that you know what it's not just one conversation I needed to actually go on a journey and that didn't happen until 2015 when I actually did speak to someone and then 2016 I actually began going to counsel on a regular basis and that really helped and you got back into your running after that as well yeah it's funny you know when you look at 2016 so I packed in the first job because I thought it was a job I got another job exact same scenario and I had a huge kind of I now know it was a panic attack on a Sunday in December 2015 uh, Charlotte was pregnant on her first child Oscar and that was the moment I was like I really need to do something so 2016, I started going to counselling on a weekly basis. I still go, one, one of the best things I've ever done. I suppose I began to understand more about myself and the change that I had and began to kind of debrief and understand it and build a bit of a toolbox. And like we talk about resilience and all these kind of words now. For me, it was going back to basics. I've been running since I was seven. You know, I've been doing sports like my whole entire life. It's part of me. You know, I suppose you could call me an addict. I needed my hit. Food as well. I loved food. I loved eating well, healthy and all that sort of crack. And I needed to get back to that. And I started running again. And it all started by going and doing my local park run. A 5k, of which I've never ran before in my life. I remember the day going up to do it and the first fellow was like, Ah, Gillick, great to see you. You should win this. And I remember thinking, oh my God, do you not realise it's 5k? I've never ran a 5k. My event was 400 metres. But (laughs) I ran it. I died a death, but I got around it. And then, you know, that kind of kick-started going back running on a weekly basis. And then that went into kind of going down doing a couple of sessions with the lads over in Tallaght Athletic Club. And then I said I'd race again. And uh, I did. Well, I remember the first time I saw you, actually, which was at the Institute of Sport. At that point, the newly formed kind of nice yeah, plush fresh, Institute of Sport, yeah. which you probably wouldn't have had uh, oh, growing up. You I'm envious. I'm jealous of what you have now. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I remember just thinking, holy hell, that's David Gillick. <laughs> oh, so, uh, I mean, you, you have a legacy that transcends beyond track. Oh, I appreciate and that. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And... And I think one of the most impressive things about that book, Back on Track, is more than food, it's your lifestyle, but you can see how that journey began by you getting over some of these darker days, which must have been so hard just to get out of that frame of mind mm. and then implement that in your life. I think it's fantastic. And I recommend it to to anybody to, to get a copy of that book. And so usually we're just going to have free photos, but you sent in another one, which I think is fantastic. And there's uh, clearly 
some very special people in your life. Yeah. Uh, your rocks, if you like, yeah. of uh, people who have been there for a long time and some new new people as new well, people I as guess. Well. Yeah, yeah. So this is your final photo, photo four. Could you please explain it to the listeners? Yeah, so this is, uh, it's a family picture. It's myself, my wife, Charlotte, and our two kids. You have Oscar, who is three, and you have Olivia, who's one. And it, I love this picture. It was taken during the last summer, so the summer of 2019. And it's a bright sunny day. We're all happy. We're all smiling. And I look at this and I, I look at me. You know, it just brings me back to that summer. And I'm both physically and mentally there, present with the people that matter most. And I think for me, even coming from the world of sport, individual sport, you tend to be selfish. And you have to be, you know. And I think to compete at that level, like yourself, you have to have an element of rootlessness. And also, you know, just pig-headedness sometimes and put yourself as P1 I look at this now and it's like it's not about me it's it's about them it's about Charlotte it's about the kids and just how happy they make me feel and you know even in terms of the work that I do now it's 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 all for them you know and I think having something like that in your life is really important and they give me so much confidence so much joy and I love spending time with them and for me now it's about them it's not about me anymore and it's nice to move away from myself and just focus on those so that's where my life is at now obviously Charlotte's been with me for we've married five years we're together probably another six on top of that so I hope you got that right there I know I'm kind of I know I probably jumped into that but uh, yeah 11-12 years okay don't hold me to it but she's been there through the highs and the lows she's seen me at my worst she's seen me at my best and I think now Charlotte looks at me and she's got the true David back you know and, and I think for her as well and I know we're talking a little bit about mental health and things like that but I put her through the ringer as well you know and people would go to her the whole time and be like how's David how's David and nobody would ever go to her and go how are you Charlotte because someone who has a mental health crisis or dealing with mental health issues there's always someone there there's always someone that's trying to prop them up or get them through it and like thankfully she did and you know I've come out the other side of it now and we have a great family and they're a joy to be around David you're a fantastic athlete you're a true gent and you've been a fantastic guest so thank you very much for being on Life in a Bubble thanks for having me on I really enjoyed it Well, that's it for episode four. Thank you to all you listeners for tuning in. Any reviews or comments are greatly appreciated. All the photos from today's episode are now up on our social media pages. So go on to Facebook or Instagram and type in a Life in a Bubble podcast to find them all. Next time, Garode Farley, one of my favorite comedians, will be on the podcast. So tune in for a good old laugh. Until then, take care, look after yourselves, have a good day. And until next time, goodbye.